Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much over by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day brings us all together. Marvellous. your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome to the Few Podcast, and here we are winding down towards the end of what is undoubtedly uh, one of the most tumultuous years uh, on record. Uh, 2020 is coming to a close. Uh, however, there's still some good news out there. There's still amazing things. We're not buying into this uh, excuse, are we, Sean, that just because it's COVID, just because it's disruption means that life's over, business is done, there's no hope. Uh, today's guest is someone who personifies uh, the opportunities that abound uh, during COVID, another a business success story. We've been looking forward to this one for a while, haven't we, Sean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Really looking forward to it. We're another 16-year overnight success uh, to to chat to. Uh, so with, with no further ado, we're not going to steal his thunder. Uh, a big week for you, uh, Tony Nash. Is that uh, correct, mate? What's happened for you this week? Oh, not too much, actually. Listed on the ASX. Um, oh, is that all? Just, just a little, just one of those small uh, life events that we all <laughs> get a chance to experience, huh? Yeah, that, that does, I guess relate to the very few if you think about it who gets to ring the bell at the asx not too many especially during covid when people were in lockdown that's for sure what's that moment feel like how, how did that feel that day well the actual ringing of the bell for those this is a, a warning forewarning for those that are going to ring the bell in the future my brother-in-law who's one of the co-founders was standing to the side of me so i was right next to it and he had this quasi-modo moment where he just had to keep ringing it and it's bloody loud. So my ear was <laughs> ringing afterwards. It hurt. Um, so just possessed by the moment. <laughs> yeah. Stand back, give it a couple of dings, I reckon. But no, he, he got stuck into it. Apparently one of the biggest bell ringers in history. So um, my ear took a little while to recover. Absolutely. And Tony, um, clearly, you, you know, you're just so that the uh, listeners know that you're the founder of uh, Booktopia and uh, seen that move from strength to strength over the last 16 years. Um, and obviously, the IPO is a big thing. It's just recently happened. I think it was last week, was it, that that, that occurred? 3rd of December. Uh, so 3rd of December, yeah. 3rd of December 2020, because nice, this nice. podcast will endure. But but it's all good to have a pinnacle event like that, but I'm sure that it had uh, a lot of ground, a lot of background, a lot of effort. When did you kind of look at that process and say, well, let's consider actually IP, IPOing. And, and, and when did you start that, I suppose, investigation phase? So we tried to list in 2016. We'd done a lot of work back then. So it's four years ago. Uh, we had started that off in 2015, and we'd probably been thinking about it for a few years before that in terms of what sort of exit, what sort of equity event could we have to get some money off the table. And, and the reason why it didn't happen in 2016 was that Amazon announced that week that they were coming to Australia. And so all the all the funds were said, well, we're you know if, if they're going to annihilate you, so we're we're out, and and we just had to park it. At, at the same time, Temple and Webster were trading at fifteen cents. They're now around ten dollars or so. Um, Kogan had flatlined since they had listed six months before. Surf Stitch were on the way out of the ASX. Redbubble hadn't done too well. So it was really like going down to Bondi Beach on a midwinter's day with a southerly coming in from <laughs> the Antarctic at, at about eight degrees trying to sell ice creams. And so yeah. to what 
what it felt like now, four years on, was like going down to Bondi Beach on a midsummer's day at 42 degrees with a with your trolley and going ice creams. And, you know, within a couple of seconds, you got a, a queue a mile long. And so we knew it was the right time to go now because mm-hmm. through the pandemic, everyone realized, not just for pure play retailers like us, but all the traditional uh, retailers as well realized that e-commerce was where it was at and you needed to have a good e-commerce offering of which Booktopia, as you guys were saying, has been going on for many years. So we were in a very, very good position to capitalize on that, but also ride this wave of investment moving from other areas into e-commerce. And, and we had to move very quickly to do that. It was um, it was one of the fastest IPOs. That's awesome. That's amazing. Congratulations, by the way. It's, it's, a, a, big, it's a big feat. And, and as you said, it's timing is everything when it comes to uh, you know getting confidence in the marketplace. And as soon as that confidence went, you know, that people just step back. But, but that's interesting, isn't it? Timing is everything. How, how true is that, Tony, in terms of your 16 years? Exp- I mean, this isn't your first radio book, Tapia. You, you'd been in IT and uh, around in this sort of market since, you know, the mid-90s. But how important is it for the, the few, the people that succeed and achieve their goals, how important is patience and timing in everything that you do? Yeah, I guess it's, it's like um, being, maybe they talk about being caught in a rip. I've never used this metaphor before, so let's see how it goes. But they say to to relax <laughs> and go go with the flow. Don't try and fight it. Don't try and swim against a rip because you're just going to wear yourself out. So I think in everything that I've done in terms of learning about business and learning what's going on is about really feeling that flow and whether it's going to be easy or not easy, whether it's going to be difficult. And and if, you, if you're trying to force it and trying to make it happen and it's just not going to happen, you've got to let it go. So I think um, hiring people or investing in certain things or projects, we've made a couple of acquisitions over the years, all those things need to come easy. Otherwise, if if it doesn't feel like the synergy's there, then maybe you're just going to put too much effort into having something work out the way that you want and it's not going to work out for you. Absolutely. So if if it requires you to push and push and push often, and I've found the same thing in my 30 years journey in, in, uh, in business is often what you think you want uh, is not actually what you really, really need. And if you keep pushing it, you, you end up uh, you know, with a, with a negative, negative outcome. So, Such a gray area though, isn't yeah, it? Because we talk about determination and pushing hard and it's a real balance between when you, when you do push and when you don't. And I think it comes down to experience, don't you think, Tony? The longer you stick with something, the more you understand your business and the, and the market, you start to make better decisions around that, don't you think? Yeah, I guess if you're a pro surfer or even a, a surfer who loves to get out into the ocean, I'm not. But you, you've got to pick your waves. And they, there's a whole series of them coming through and you're going, oh, that's the one to ride. And they know which ones to leave and they know which ones to ride. And there's new ones coming all the time. So you, you do need to know how what's going on in your own business. You've got to have a feel for that. I think earlier on, people have a tendency to go, oh, there's a wave. I've got to catch it because they think it's the only one. And and often that's, you know, I've made that mistake early on in my business journey is, you know, just try to catch every wave that came. And what you realize is that saying no is vastly more important than saying yes, because it might only be one in 10 waves, you know, to use that analogy, that is the one that you should really be riding. And uh, it's, it's an important one too. So Great segue, mate. Was that first wave, Tony? We'll stick with the surfing analogies. When was that first Booktopia wave coming over the horizon for you? And what was it that got you excited about that first step? When, when we started Booktopia, we were doing internet marketing. We were getting people to the top of Google um, driving traffic to, to websites. And the reason why we were doing that is before that, we had a failed internet software business. And before that, I was in recruitment for the computing industry. So when we had done a job on Angus and Robertson's website to get them to the top of Google, we got introduced to the company that was managing their site and fulfilling their orders for them. 
And they had about 80 bookstores websites that they were managing. So we uh, had a meeting with them and pitched the idea of them introducing us to the other bookstore customers. So we'll get them to the top of Google as well. And we would get more project work. And they weren't interested in doing those intros. You're not interested in making more money? And they said, look, it's not our business. We manage bookstore websites and we fulfill those orders. And so I then used that platform to start Booktopia. So there was it was just an evening side project. You know, the young younger people, do they call it a side hustle? Um, I'm too old for, to call it a side hustle. And so I didn't have a light bulb moment. I didn't have this like, you know, this is a huge opportunity. It was just something that I tinkered around from around 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. every night working on Google ads and driving traffic into the site that these guys were managing for us. So it probably took two or three years before we realized mm, there's something going on here. And we had got the revenue up to a couple of million. And, and that's when we thought, well, let's just take it to the next level. And for me, the way that I kind of operate as, as a business entrepreneur is I look at the horizon point, my next horizon point, and I just go for that. So, so it was about getting from 2 million to 5 million in revenue. And what have I got to do to get there? What do we need in place? How do we make that work? And as you keep setting those horizon points, you start to formulate a strategy or plan how to get there. You may not know how to get there, but you that's where you want to get. It kind of, that, that, those waves kind of came through many times over as we we made greater insights, holding more stock. No one was really doing that online. Amazon was doing it, but they were overseas. No one was doing it locally. Um, uh, having a customer service team here on the ground that people could call, um, having book experts, lots of things that came through, um, getting into academic, getting into tertiary books, many, many things that happened along the way where we, I had to kind of get work out whether that was going to work or not work. It's interesting how you talk about uh, having inventory and, and a local base here. I know in COVID, uh, I don't know about you, I'm using it as an excuse not to exercise. I've been wait, waiting for some weights to arrive for four months uh, through, <laughs> through an Australian-based uh, fitness company that uh, obviously holds no stock here and everything comes in from China. I think that's also really important there, Tony. You're talking, we talk about marketing, we talk about the ability to raise the profile of a business and deliver a service, but how important is that back end? How, how important is it to invest in the basics and to have that... Uh, just in time. I mean, I know in our family where the kids, my partner on on Booktopia, just constantly uh, looking at reading, expanding knowledge in a certain area, and it's pretty much there the next day. Uh, how important and how much of an investment was that in your back end? Yeah. So the the main thing to understand is is the one question we've asked every day: What do our customers want? And by asking that from day one, um, every single day, the answers appear because you're asking a, a great quality question. What our customers want. Maybe it wasn't to hold stock. We found that it was. Um, what do our customers want? They they want us to invest in automation. We when we first moved to this facility, which um, is now fourteen thousand square meters, but was around ten thousand. We've expanded it. Is that we had no automation, and we we needed to spend five million dollars, and the bank wouldn't give us any money to do that. So we had to pay for it ourselves out of customers buying from us and using that money. And only once we had done that, the bank magnanimously gave us $1.5 million lease back facility so we could then release some of the cash. And so everything was done out of the proceeds from customers buying from us, hiring more people, writing more software, investing in the algorithms, all the things that we did. So I'm very much in the mind of getting the cash in your account to pay for things. I'm not big into going out and, and getting a, a funding round 
and then use trying to use that money to get to a certain level because you really haven't proven your model. That's not in my my instinctual behavior. So therefore, where's the money going to come from? Where's the money going to come from? And chasing that money and then and using that money. A lot of others go, I'm going to go out and I've got a great idea and I'm going to raise this capital. Right? And then I'm going to, people are going to invest in me and invest in the idea. And then we're going to get it operational. And then hopefully we'll get some cash. And then hopefully we'll be profitable. So being focused on the cash. And then ultimately after probably around 10 years, 10 to 11 years, we started to focus on the profit. It's great to hear that you've, and I think it's a bit of a uh, kind of a standard belief in the marketplace that, you know, for you to grow, like you have the scale over time that you need to be getting this money from other people all the time. And I've seen a lot in a lot of businesses where they haven't been able to get the funding. As you said, you, you couldn't get it. The banks wouldn't, didn't want to touch you at that point for some reason. Um, and you actually do it yourself. And it's interesting because getting funding can actually be a shortcut that can potentially hamstring you because it's a lazy approach often at funding yes absolutely you need it at some point very strategically but i think earlier on the more you can build and grow your your business and the, and as you said prove your model the more value it, valuable it's going to be when you do actually need to get funding and therefore you're going to give away less of the uh, less of the pie so that's it's great to hear that you guys have been able to go down that path too. I think also when people look at there. funding OPEX as well, when I'm going to raise some money to pay salaries, that's when you start to worry about the the, the viability of, of what's going on there. Uh, you mentioned, Tony, a couple of failures uh, prior to Booktopia. How important was that for your journey in terms of getting some things wrong and things not working? It's it's part of being a business owner. It's part of life. So things come out of left field that you didn't expect. And you've got to be able to say, bring it on. When we moved in here uh, to this facility in Lidcombe near, near the Olympic Park, uh, we had already secured another property, paid our little deposit and contracts were being organized. But uh, one of the CEOs of the big internationals that rents a lot from the, the property group that we rent from rang the CEO of the property group and they said, we want that unit. I know you've rented it out, but we've rented all over the country. So we're going to take it. And the real estate guy had to ring me on Christmas Eve and he, he was just sweating bullets. Tony, I've got the worst possible news. And he explained what happened, what I, what I just described. And uh, I'm so sorry, because we've been looking for nine months and finally we found the place that we wanted. And uh, I said, relax, Sean. The reason why you're telling me this is that there's a better opportunity waiting for us around the corner. And really? Yeah. And the company, the property group, really bent over backwards for us and, and worked hard to get us bigger plays for the same amount of money and it really did work out better but you've got to be able to if you're going to kick and scream and and yell when something doesn't work out the way that you want rather than going all right you know what what am i learning um what is the what are the opportunities you, you will not be resilient you've got to be able to say bring it on you've got to be able to flow with the punches go with the flow um and that way you'll be able to endure anything and everything will come out of left you will spend millions of dollars of, of mistakes or, you know, as, as some of the mis, a mistake, you know, like you'll be having to redo and waste money. And, and that's, that's, it. that's what it is to be in business. So one of the things I, uh, I picked up doing while we were doing a little of uh, background you know, research and, some, and going through some of the information on yourself and, and your journey is one thing that stood out was, and, and you've just said it there, is it's the, this, this, this real estate guy was expecting you to probably lose your stack, blow your stack and be all upset and everything. But what came through was it was this 
underlying positive mindset. What do you believe? What, why do you believe that's so so important for for business owners? When and they're on and this where does it journey? come from? Is that yeah. is is that who Tony is, or are you you learn through the the mistakes that you've made and the, the things that went wrong around you that you you have this uh, ability? Yeah, where do you think that positivity comes from, Tony? Yeah, so we just had um, our Zoom forty year school reunion. I'm fifty seven, right? So our high school reunion. Well, there you go. We've got his age. Forty years. We, we were having a chat about <laughs> beforehand. We're like, oh. We're we need to talk to Tony about, you know, can you find success, you know, with a bit of maturity? So we said, oh, we're not going to ask how old he is. And there we are. Thanks, mate. You've made that bit a little bit easier. Sorry. So you're uh, your reunion. Yeah, that's right. So um, so the, uh, it was more that, you know, the people that I went to school with would probably um, um, say one of my best mates, he says, I don't know what happened. How did you, how did that Tony Nash that was in school end up being this Tony Nash that has so much um, um, insights? and and I wrote a lot in my journals when I was younger. I really tried to work things out. I put myself through a lot of personal development courses uh, through with Robert Kiyosaki um, and lots. I went through many different programs to continue to invest in myself and, and develop my, my reactions, develop my mindset, develop my, my skills. So I haven't done many in the last 15, 20 years. I think marriage and running your own business is probably the best workshop you could be in. Um, but I mean, I've done some pretty crappy presentations as well. Like I've literally been up on stage and and walked off and gone, that's embarrassing. Or what I said there was ridiculous. But if I said, oh my God, you know, I'm so hopeless at, at doing public speaking. I, uh, I'm just, that's, I'll always embarrass myself. That was just, that's, that's, you got to learn. You got to be able to go through those and go, I'll never say that again. Or I can, I can think about, I'm going to say that slightly different next time. That's, that's what it takes. And, and so it's about making sure that as everything's going on in your business, that you are, you are thinking about how it played out, what could you do better? The IPO four years ago, right, to the IPO now, I learned a lot. It was a great dry run. Everyone talked about the failure. And if you, re- if you do read up on some of the articles um, that journalists have written over the last year or so, oh, Booktopia rattling the tin can again, or, or in a, they failed once and they, they abandoned a crowdfund. We only read the reason why we abandoned a, a crowdfund is because other bigger investors wanted to invest in us. And so there's all this negative chatter that's out there and you need to have your own positive chatter uh, to, to combat any of that and perhaps anything negative that's going through your own mind. But um, it's, it really is comes from within and i think it's that common trait we've seen you know with the few you know interviewing the few the common trait is the fact that they've done the they've done the work on themselves they've actually gone and it's more it's not the iq it's the eq the emotional intelligence piece just a great level of self-awareness i think and and investing in that yeah you're 100 percent. and the business journey is an incredible one for that absolutely so clearly there's been a shift over the last you know 10 15 years um away from bricks and mortar and uh to the online you know, did you see that fairly early on or was it later? Are you thinking this was complementary to physical bookstores? Because I know that you guys ended up buying a couple of different um, um, you know, businesses in Australia, uh, actual physical um, bricks and mortar bookstores. But did you look at that and say, well, this is the way people are going to buy in the future or you kind of just gradually developed that? As a, um, as a recruiter, I was trained in solution selling. And that means that you go out and sit down with the client, understand their needs and you go away and you find people who you think are suitable for for that role? And I I had a skill, I had a knack, I had a I had a, a personal pride to try and give them one resume that they would hire, and and I would understand the culture of the organisation, I would understand 
the, the type of personality of the person that I was interviewing, to work out whether they were going to fit, whether when they met each other, a bit of a matchmaking service. I really like the matchmaking of recruitment. And, and that when I thought of books, even though I'm not much of a reader, I like the idea of being in a bookshop. And even though I may not have read The Girl with the Dragon's Tattoo, and I actually haven't, I've watched the movie, <laughs> but I then therefore understand a bit about it. And then, oh, you like, you, you, you like Girl with the Dragon's Tattoo. Oh, so you're into Scandinavian crime, are you? And they go, what? Scandin- is, there a, is there a genre? Oh, it's a sub-sub-genre, yeah. Let me introduce you to Joe Nesbo or Camilla Lackberg. And, and what happens is, is that it's about adding value. So where do you add value when you are a salesperson, when you are work, working with a customer. And that's why for me, even though I'm a technologist, IT, um, e-commerce, et cetera, I still feel that a great bookstore can be a great bookstore if you're adding value on the shop floor. When someone comes in, they will keep coming back to you because you are not wasting their time. There are millions of books. There's actually 33 million books to choose from right now. And so um, if someone can save you time and take you and let you go away to, to have uh, 20 hours of, of indulging yourself reading a great book and you didn't waste your time and that, that was brilliant, you want to go back to that person and ask the same thing. And that's why I feel the good bookstores are here to stay. I've been into many bookstores where the millennials are standing behind the counter on their phones, not looking up. I was in one in Canberra a couple of years ago. Um, I, I always like to walk into bookstores, as you can imagine. And there was people milling around, walking around, and this lady came up with the kids in the pram to the counter, and the girl behind the counter said, oh, you found what you were looking for, did you? Um, that's embarrassing. Um, I've been in bookstores in and out, and people have just been on their phones and never came, come up to you. That's not adding value, and you've got, to, you've got to add value. So if you're adding value, then I think then there's an opportunity for your business to succeed, whether you're a retail bookstore, online. Uh, that, that's the most important thing to focus on. And that must be quite uh, challenging as well in a digital arena. Uh, it, when people are looking for experiences, you get the visceral, tangible experience in, in a bookstore, touch the books, wander around, smell the books. How do you do that? I, I mean, you're looking at the digital world is awash with content. I can't, you can't even imagine the, the rate at which more content is being produced, video content, written content. Uh, what's the trick to delivering uh, content and value in a digital world that lands someone to buying a paper book? For us, it's about having book experts working in our teams, um, actually organizing the site uh, like they would be in a big bookshop organizing the shelves. So when you walked in there, that you're delighted by the way that the shelves look and all the options and, and, the, and, and the books that they've cherry-picked out of all the books available to showcase front out or spine, spine in. Right. that's what we try to do because we have the algorithm sitting behind them because with 4,000 categories that exist in the book industry and subcategories and major categories, et cetera, you can't, you can't organize all those shelves. But having the major ones, so the fiction and the romance and children's and philosophy, et cetera, those guys are looking at those and they're looking and going, I want to put this one at the top. Why? I know it's a debut author, never been read before, but that book is going to win the award next year because it's just like anyone would do in a normal bookshop too. That book is incredible. And so therefore, we have real book people who have worked in bookshops in the book industry in that in that team, the trade team as well as the academic team uh, to to organize the site. So it's, a, it's as close as you can get to being in a shop without being there. You mentioned before uh, setting horizons, uh, Tony. And it's interesting, a lot of entrepreneurs, highly motivated, positive people 
that's something they're really good at is setting the big dream. Uh, what seems to happen though is they don't get there. Uh, it was really telling when you said before, you must have been really excited by your APO and you're like, yeah, you know, it's just yet another small step, another incremental step on your on your journey to success. We have this. We talk about the concept of SLJs, shitty little jobs, the small bits of detail uh, that happen every day. How important is it to be able to get the small things done every day in order to achieve those big, you know, sixteen-year, two-year, three-year horizons? Um, very important, but that's when you hire other people to do them for you. <laughs> <laughs> and hence, why you need the right people in those in those roles because you get some of those things wrong. That's right. And I'll share, I'll share an interesting story. So when we were turning over around 5 million, we had about 14 people working for us, for us, 15 people, something like that. And there was another guy that had a another online bookstore who I knew, and he was turning over a couple of million. And I rang him just to check in, how's he going? How's he seeing it? What's happening? And he said to me, oh, Tony, I've, I've had eight, 18 angina attacks in the last three months. I said, mate, What's going on? What, why? Why? How's how's that? He goes, oh, my wife and I were working six days a week, eighteen hours a day, and we're just totally stressed. I said, Do you, don't you have any other people working for you? And he goes, well, we've got two casuals coming in and helping out. I said, well, why don't you hire more people? He said, well, they don't do it as good as us. And that's the point. They'll never do it as good as you, but they're doing it. They're doing part of it. So, I've never been afraid of hiring more people to to take you know, to carry the load, we've got over 200 staff now. So, so it's about hiring the good people and creating great systems and processes for them to work within. And, and so therefore, when you ask that question about SLJs, it's kind of like, well, I guess we all do them. Um, I report to a CEO at home. So most of my SLJs are <laughs> reporting to my wife and making sure I did this and I did that. And I, did you do this? Right. That's, um, that's being um, the part the part home partnership. Um, but they're, um, that's a bit different to, to the office. But we ha I have a good EA and I've got a great executive um, and, and we've got tremendous people working in all the different departments. They're very passionate about what we do and, and the role that they're playing and that we're growing and they're part of a growing organisation. So I think um, sometimes you just, you just do them. Sometimes it's important actually to, to work out. Some, some people just keep doing them but don't stop to think, could I drop that or do it very differently? And they just, it just keeps them busy. It's very important to analyze, is that just keeping me busy? Or, or can I think of something else that can mitigate that? Or you know, even just only before we came on, I, um, with one of the roller doors, the guys have got to, they keep the roller doors up in the warehouse, which lets a lot of dust in, which really irritates me and my deputy CEO, Wayne Baskin. We both get irritated by that. How we just give them, like a clicker, you know, we use it at home when we when we rock up to our house. Why don't we organize to have a clicker? And it's just those things that people don't stop to think and they just waste, they waste time. And it's important to challenge that. I think that's the most important thing to continue to work out whether you're wasting your time or not. It's such a strong belief in in small business owners and, and working with them in what I do, you know, day to day is that same thing. It's like, oh, but, you know, they're not going to do as good as me. And one of my mentors that I had 15 years ago said to me, they might not do it as good as you, but if you've got four people doing it, 80% of what you can do it, how many percentage are you getting? And I'm like, that's right. Oh, Spot on. That's a heck of a lot more, you know? And, and I think too, the whole thing about people doing the, just doing the same thing over and over again is a lot of the time driven by their lack of an intrinsic motivator that's strong enough and that purpose piece. So what is it, what's you, what's the purpose that's been driving yourself, Tony? What's, what's given you the, 
the fuel to continue even when you know when you've hit a wall or something's come up or some you know things happened what, what's been that intrinsic motivator for you i think if you're very fixated on the outcome then you'll crack through anything i'll share a story with you it's a funny one when I was um, doing a lot of that personal development I was talking about, we, we had a, I forget which course I was in, I can't remember. There was about 30 people in the course and uh, it, was a, it was a game or a session that they did set up, which was basically they split the room in half, 15 on either side, put some masking tape down one wall and on the other wall. And, uh, and one group was the dogs and one group was the cats. And I was in the cats, right? And the guy, our little supervisor of our group said to all of us, okay, what you got to do is you got to get from your side of the wall to the other side of the wall, past the dogs, right? And that's your job. Ready, set, go. You know, so we all charged across and a lot of us got across and others didn't make it. And there was lots of giggling and there's a bit of fun and grabbing people and probably 70% got across. We had a debrief. So how'd you go? What did you, what happened? What did you learn? And then we went and he said, all right, let's do it again. This time I want you to try as hard as you can. All right. And so we met, ready, set, go. This time probably 90% got across. And, and therefore, um, there was a few more injuries or maybe you know, <laughs> a few inappropriate things were done and more determined and less determined. And we broke out into our groups again. Anyway, the, the guy that was managing our little group said, all right, here's the deal. You cats, your kittens are on the other side of that room. And if you do not get across there, those dogs will eat your kittens, right? You understand? Ready, set, go. We absolutely pulverize them. Like, and everyone in the dogs, like, it was last like everyone got across and everyone understood the intensity of what we had to do and the, and the moment and, and we had to save our kittens. So sometimes in business, you've got to understand what is it you're really going for? What are you really playing for? And do you have the heart in it or do you have the intensity or not? So if you're, you're very fixated about a goal, you're very fixated, you will cut through anything. And that was a very important lesson to me, even though I got through every time I was you know, an athlete and I, I knew it probably knew how to get through better than some of the other people. But what I observed with the, with the others as they were able to cut through um, where I, I would have originally thought, oh, well, they're, they're easily going to get tackled. They had it. They had it well within them and to dig deep down and understand that. And I think it's really important for, for business owners to understand that that's what it really takes sometimes to have a very clear goal, get your team aligned, go, that's where we're heading. And then, you probably will cut through a lot of the obstacles and you make better decisions. You won't fart ass around and try, you know, trying to be nice and you just, let's get this done. And you said it there, you, you got to get your team aligned because right? you're not clear where you're going. You, how are your team going to have any idea of where it is you're headed? And, and, and you, it's amazing when you get in these bigger organizations, it's just chaos. Uh, the, the, the clarity is not there. Uh, when, when yeah, Tony's a disruptor, one of the key parts of disruption is being focused on what you are disrupting and what you're doing. Organizations that are being disrupted are the complete opposite. They are all over the place. They are failing to create focus. It just there's too much money, too much going on, too many people. Um, it's absolutely chaotic. You mentioned about the intrinsic motivator, and then uh, Tony, you also mentioned about being part of a growing organization. How important do you think it is to your team, uh, the 200 folks that work in your company, that you're moving forward all the time and you're winning little wins continuously? Do you think that's motivating in itself? That it's it's a, it's a journey that people want to be a part of. They want to feel uh, that winning culture. Of course. I mean, most people would probably say, of course they will. Of course they will. Um, others don't. Others um, self-sabotage or um, have, want to have reasons for why. They, they just kind of pop out of the organization, people like that, because everyone else is, is incredibly enthusiastic and, 
and therefore um, we're not the we're not the the kind of company for them. But um, it is important to understand and manage that kind of harmony of the team and the harmony of the teams and who you're bringing on and and is there is is there any kind of negative energy in there or people dragging the chain a little that you need to manage and and so we've had plenty of people in the past that have kind of uh, been like that um bloody hard workers mostly um very committed in very many of the same ways and had accomplished a lot but at the same time kind of do it with a bit of, um, for whatever reason, with a bit of carnage along the way. So it's important to make sure that you you protect that and make sure that the team who is really, who is there protecting that. In terms of people's careers, one of the things that I loved about, uh, I'll share this too, when someone comes in and resigns, wow, where are you going next? Because if you don't want to be here, you must be going somewhere amazing. And because I was a recruiter, I pinched people from companies and put them in other companies. So I know what it's like. And it was really odd to me um, to recruit someone for, for a company. And, and I would ask them, so what are you really looking for? And they gave me this kind of recipe. They need five years of this and three years of that, blah, 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 blah. Right? And, I, and I have to go out and find someone who's doing exactly the same thing as they wanted to do in their company. I said, okay, so what are they going to be learning? And they said, oh, nothing really. They're going to do the same thing. I said, well, why would they come here? And they said, well, we'll pay them more. And quite often money is not necessarily the right motivator. People want their careers to develop. So I'm, I've always been excited about people coming in and using Booktopia as a stepping stone in their career because then they're more value to themselves, more value to their families, more value to the, the companies that they serve. And that's the most important thing. So I love it that we're growing and that people come here. But um, when someone resigns, a lot of people, a lot of business owners, is, I think this is an important point, they, they fear or they worry, <gasps> once that person leaves, you know, we're going to be staffed. Um, and it's like, no, it's just one of the other things you get, bring it on. You know, something comes out of left field. It's, uh, it actually happened to us just recently in this, our CFO, who's 63, he, a few weeks before we were kind of getting ready for the roadshows, decided to um, resign because he didn't want to go into the roadshows and invest. A pr- it's not his thing. He's very, very good at what he does. But public company CFO, that wasn't for him. Would have been nicer if he spoke up a little earlier, but that's when it came through. And so we had to respond really quickly. I made a few phone calls and within a day I had I had recruited our CFO. And because he, he had to do the right thing for him, I couldn't hmm. force him and cajole him or pay him more money to stay. Please stay. Please stay. Not at all. I think that's an important lesson for people to, to understand how I've operated. Uh, Tony, it sounds, sounds very much that you're coming from a very abundant mindset approach too, that, that you let one thing go, you're going to have the opportunity to, to potentially get something better. Like you said, with the, with the you know, location that you've got now, when that first one was taken away, it's okay, great. Well, there must be a better opportunity then if we were not meant to have that one. Same thing with your team. And I've seen that especially working with, in, in, with small business owners, is it's often that thing. It's like, oh, the, you know, I've had people in tears. This person, I've only got four team and they've been with you for two years and like my whole business is going to fail. And it's, it's like, yeah, but well, now that person's not there, what would, you, what, would, what would you hire for? What roles would you have? Well, actually, I'd have two roles. Okay, and if you had two roles, what the impact is that going to have on the business? Oh, actually. And it's that change of the belief that the only person that you need to maintain in your business and it's growing and it's developing is you. <laughs> any of the other team can actually be replaceable, you know, and, and it's that thing of keeping that abundant mindset and, and being positive as well 
to to um, draw that next opportunity and to draw that next person to you. So one one question I did have, and and, and this again I think goes to to the abundant mindset, is that you, know, you guys are, are, are fairly he- um, you know, strongly involved in in philanthropic um, ventures. What, what, where does that I guess the passion and drive to to support you know um, other people in in literacy and and reading and and provide books to to different you know groups and and things like that. Where, where does that come from for you guys? Uh, look, I'm I've always been a fairly generous person. I, I wasn't married before, but I have I have a son who's 17 and my stepdaughter's 15, right? And so my wife, she was um, saying to to the universe, uh, she's looking for someone who's generous of spirit. Um, I never really thought of myself that way, but when you get feedback from my own close universe like that, that's that's how she sees me, and that's pretty much how I am to make sure that um, every. I mean, I'm in business with my family, my brother, my brother-in-law, my sister. I started off on my own. But I got them um, to come on the journey with me. So I'm always including people. Um, and so that's pretty much a part of my nature. However, I also know that the um, customers of Booktopia are learned, passionate, um, principled people who I feel would um, feel good about us giving back in whatever way we could, not to try and look like we're doing the right thing. So therefore, um, they're going to buy more from us. It's just a win-win, winning, win, lots of wins kind of situation where we are giving back and we're giving it to, um, particularly I've always focused on literacy because that's the business that we're in, um, Indigenous literacy, all types of reading, um, authors, um, industry awards for for authors and book designers, et cetera, and, and to keep it really close. So we're doing something um, I've noticed over the last 16 years, how, however, that social philanthropy has definitely increased um, as part of a discussion. So we were onto it fairly early um, because it was just the right thing to do. Uh, but I'm really pleased that it's becoming more a part of the, the thinking or the priorities of, of business leaders and not just there for the dollar and, and it's all about them and, and their personal wealth. It's a... Uh... It's an interesting uh, balance, isn't it? Um, I spoke to somebody once as well that talked about, uh, who was discussing with me, uh, particularly when you're starting off in a business or you're starting off uh, with a bit of a a, a philanthropic bent uh, to your business. And one of the bits of advice he said is, look, it's important to give back, but there's a time to do that. And, And you've got to make sure that the basic and the bare bones of your business and what you're trying to do are effective. Because uh, one of the challenges with philanthropy, I guess, is it's a, it can be uh, all-consuming. Uh, so how do you find balancing that, uh, Tony? What would your advice be for uh, business owners who are, are like you, are generous of spirit, but finding that balance between uh, generosity and sound business mind and managing your cash flow, ensuring that you're still uh, surviving as a business? So I'll, I'll answer it this way. So for me, you, we've all heard of the expression win-win or win-lose. You know, it's a, it's a win-win situation. I actually don't uh, believe in win-win. I believe in double win-win. And, and what I mean by that is that there's four, it needs to be four winners for a business to be sustainable. So Booktopia needs to win. We actually need to make profit because if we don't, if we're losing money, then ultimately we'll go out of business. The customer needs to win. They want to know they're going to get the book at a good price. They're going to get it quickly. They want to feel good about the purchase, et cetera. It doesn't need to be the cheapest, but they just want to have the transaction in its entirety be, be good. The suppliers need to win. I mean, you hear about Woolies and Coles squeezing the milk and the egg producers. Um, if if you if your suppliers aren't winning, how are they going to continue to supply you the product? I want them to make money. They need to make money so they can continue to do that. And your employees need to win. So 
Um, you've got to have, because they, they're going to be paid well. They've got to be able to get up each day with as much energy as they had the day before and they're not worked to the bone. You hear some of the terrible stories about Amazon with ambulances outside the front of their building. I have no idea whether that's true or an urban myth, but I like to continue to talk about it because it does continue to, <laughs> you know, to populate that idea. But regardless, you know, Having, people, having your employees be able to be, everything, that's a sustainable model. So when I think about philanthropy, all the philanthropic programs we've been involved in is we have a very strict budgeting process. So I know that we've set aside already certain programs for this year. There's a certain amount of money and that's it. And then when people ring up, I say, look, we only focus on literacy in Australia until we've handled that because they've got all these other overseas things and we have a certain amount of money that we can work with. But tell me what you're doing and we'll see if we can get it into the next financial year. So then you have the power to say no. But more importantly, what I found is they're ringing me. Is that really impressed? Because these are people who are looking for handouts. And when they hear that you actually uh, have got a model and it's defined and and even it, I think at the moment ours is around 80 to 100,000 a year of our own you know, proceeds, our own profit that we're putting into that. And then we do lots of other things that we give away a lot of books, which isn't included in that. But in terms of some of the things that we donate to, that's how much we give, right? So therefore, if if it's just $3,000, you're done. That's great. Oh, we've no, we've got a program. We've got a philanthropic program and we it's already dedicated. But people feel good when they ring you and you say no to them when you actually, they're inspired to make another call. And that's what you want to do. You want to, when someone rings you up to ask you to donate, you've got to be able to inspire them to continue to go on. I've got a bit of a thought run here. Sorry, mate. I'm just going to keep run, running with it. I've got a couple of things uh, that that have sort of come out uh, while you while you're talking, uh, Tony. Uh, one of the one of the concepts you mentioned was, uh, and I'll use uh, Rich and Jeff from the beer cartels um, words here. A, a few months ago, we had a podcast with a. A, a, a beer company does pretty much what you do, but it's craft beer. Uh, it's an online uh, retail business. And one of the things they said is if to be successful as a founder and an owner of a business is you've got to find a real thrill and joy out of problem solving. Uh, how, how true do you think that is in terms of waking up in the morning, having a problem? Uh, we call it the excuse matrix. A, a lot of people that I guess that, that want to be one of the few, but maybe don't get there is Oh, there's an excuse not to. I mean, you're you're in a bit of a David and Goliath battle with Amazon here, right? Like this, you've always got this giant there, uh, and that would be a great excuse for a lot of people who are looking at uh, online retail to go. Oh, it's too hard. How important is your is your desire to solve problems on a day to day basis? Um, I can understand why he might say that. That doesn't feel like how it is for me. It feels more like breathing or exercise or eating. I don't know. It just feels more natural. I, I have ADHD. I didn't know that I have ADHD until a few years ago when my my wife, my son's stepmother said, there's really something going on with, with my son. And um, through ex- finding that out, we we found out that he had ADHD and, and then he got on medication. He went from a, um, a you know, BC student to an A student within a month. Um, it helped, really helped him focus. And so wasn't long after where she said, I, I really think you've got it as well. So off, off I went to the psychiatrist and he said, there's no way you've got ADHD. He said, look at Booktopia, hugely successful. You're doing this, you're doing that. Incredible. Anyway, so he, um, he said, but before I make my final decision, is it okay if your wife comes in? I said, of course. You know, so a week later we go in and after about 20 minutes, he looks at me and he goes, you definitely have ADHD. <laughs> and so 
Um, what I learned from that and what I've learned about myself is that with ADHD, you love doing what you want to do and you really hate doing what you don't want to do. So it's a bit of a superpower, especially if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a painter or if you're an, art, an artist of, or a musician or something. And I'm sure over history, some of the greatest inventors and, 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 and artis, artisans have, have probably had some sort of condition like that where their relationships were, were awful, but what they produced was incredible. And so to me, when I answer your question in an odd way, I've got to take that into consideration because I actually naturally enjoy solving problems or thinking, I, have, I think three-dimensionally. And so I, to, rather than you know, people say, you've got to think outside the box. No, no, you've got to think outside the cube because there's always a different position where you can be looking at a problem and you've got to be, be able to look at that in a different way. And I had a great experience. I did the business school for entrepreneurs with Robert Kiyosaki in, in Hawaii. And it was 16 days. It was in 1993. They, they still run it, not, not Robert, but still run. It's about eight days. Um, when the COVID's over, it'll be back on again. And one of the things that um, I learned was there's an American guy, a Texan, who was teaching us about negotiation. And he was talking about, you've got to think in 3D. And you've got to be able to see these problems three-dimensionally because you'll see things that others don't see, which is really how I felt when I got into the book industry because everyone had been looking at it like the world is flat for so long. And for me, I could just see all the opportunities that were there um, plain for me to see because I didn't think the way that they thought. You know, After that um, particular session that night, I'd, I was really exhausted. I went to sleep and I woke up at, at about 10.30 p.m. I missed dinner and I walk outside. So we're in Hawaii midsummer i walk i walk out and there's these people in the middle of the night on deck chairs in front of the pool i said what are you doing and they said uh, they said well there's going to be a lunar eclipse and it was one of those eclipses where um the earth is in front of the moon and the sun is behind the earth so it has that kind of orangey nice glow around it right and all of us i'm standing there watching with them and all of a sudden the eclipse starts <clears throat> and the moon goes from this bright white that we always see to a nice soft orange and all of a sudden my you know when you used to see those 3d kind of magic eye things and all of a sudden you get to see it and you see the 3d your, your eyes yeah. defocused <laughs> all of a sudden i saw this ball hanging in space with foreground and background and i realized then that's how they could get to the moon because it was just from here to there and there's a lot about thinking in 3d that people and entrepreneurs and anyone kids whoever politicians like You've got to think three-dimensionally if you're going to get a different position. Otherwise, you're stuck and all you can see it is one way. And that, we're not, so we're, it's a, I know you asked that question in a certain way, but that to me is super important to understand because if you can get that, then you can start to develop the skill to do it. And because for me, it's very natural to think that way, to think, to try to look at different positions. That's interesting because, you know, as a, as a uh, fighter pilot and being trained to think three dimensions from at the age of a teenager, you, I think you've said it in a way that sort of just struck a chord, which is you can always come at a problem. I, I like lateral thinking. I like thinking outside the square, but sometimes when people do that, it's totally chaotic. The perspective is not even looking at this planet. It's looking over there in the completely wrong direction. And that three-dimensional context of situating the same problem, but looking at it differently rather than too abstract. And this is where I think a lot of people get confused with innovation. It becomes abstract. It's it's totally un, unusable. I think that three-dimensional, because that's situational awareness. That, that's that's looking at it from every direction, getting the, the the right bits of information, 
but you're you're making the context of it sharper. And then when you get that sharp context, you can make a decision and stuff happens. It's, it's interesting. I thought you were talking about me, Tony, when you were saying that, you know, through your son, you figured out that you've got certain gifts and the way that you do things and process information and how you deal with life and what is thrown your way. When you actually, and, and people talk about the concept, you know, with, know, with my son, about labels, we don't want to give them labels, you know, but it's like moving the label aside and it is hard to go through the process with your kids. You know, my, my son was um, uh, 11 at the time uh, uh, last year and um, we're like, no, I don't want to freaking give him a label. But what it gives you is it gives you an understanding of how somebody sees the world and, and, it, and then it reflects back because my wife kept sending me stuff about my son and going, is this actually about Aston? <laughs> and I'm like, hmm. And so in that same process, it's like, okay, now I understand the same thing you would, and you said it. You would just dive really deep on the things you really, really get into, and then it's, it's like there's nothing. There's like an on or off switch I've found in in my own way of looking at it. And that three dimensional thinking, I, when I would would uh, say review something that in detail and agreement or whatever it is, I would actually in my head see that it, I've actually put it in a three dimensional environment to look at you know, things that are less and more important and, and hierarchies and stuff rather than just looking at it flat. 3D thinking, there's a, there's a book there, has to be, surely. Yeah, it's really <laughs> interesting, but uh, great, great to hear, book, similar, similar, yeah. similar journey. But uh, I think when it comes to things like, like conditions like ADHD, bipolar, I've often thought about this because over, over the, you know, the course of a life, you come across a lot of people and uh, there's, you come across people who are brilliant and troubled. Uh, at the same time, probably starting to go off on a bit of a tangent here, to be honest, but it did raise a thought bubble. How, how important is it, though, to be able to to have that perspective, to be able to, because no one's perfect, right, Tony? I don't think anyone's, anyone's. there's no perfect human out there. You, know, you, you look at people that are very good behavioral learners, uh, structured learners, doctors, lawyers, who have that very uh, process-driven approach to things and incredibly valuable Uh how, how important is it to embrace that part of yourself? Uh, I think I think uh, the 2020s is definitely the decade of mental health. We've heard it already for a little while now. People, uh, famous sports people, uh, politicians, other people taking a mental health break, um, or I'm suffering from depression, or I've you know I've got this affliction. The more that we talk about it, the more it moves from being. It's kind of like homosexuality from when I was growing up in the 70s was really taboo. Was like you never ever talked about it. And if you were homosexual, then it was just traumatic for them and for the family. Now it's just the norm. We just go, yeah, oh, right. That's the way you're inclined. Terrific. I mean, that's the way I certainly live my life. And I know the majority do now. Some don't. But the majority, it's more mainstream. And I think with mental health, it's going to go through a similar kind of uh, transition of people realizing, actually, that's very fluid. We really do need to be mindful of where people are at. And I think... The more that I talk about it when I do my keynotes and I've had feedback, people come up to me afterwards and they say, you know, they don't talk about Booktopia or about um, entrepreneurship. They want to talk about mental health. And therefore, the more that you know who you are rather than um, beating yourself up for why do I keep doing that? Why am I keep sabotaging myself? Why am I a procrastinator? All these things, once you become more accepting of yourself, then it's easier to then manage yourself and move on. Absolutely. The, the clear understanding of self. We had an event recently and the theme was about self-leadership. And the, and the first pillar that we were teaching in that was about know thyself. And because you say you know how to deal, if you know how you compute in a situation. So for me, for example, uh, I'm quite a strong introvert. And I read a book called Quiet by Susan Cain. Incredible, incredible. Or listen to, I don't read books. I'm, I don't want to create a reading, so I listen. 
And it was life-changing. It was absolutely like, because when I thought I was a bit strange going in at a conference or something and sitting in the toilet cubicle and just shutting the door and sitting there for 10 minutes, just because I couldn't look or talk to or hear another person talk for a while, what I realized is that how I tick is that I was going over my limit and I needed to get some time to get back down into a more comfortable place. And so that process in, in, my, in my own is, and I, never, I probably started three books a year, read, read one chapter and never finished them for 20 years. But when I was introduced to audio uh, books, um, for me, it was life-changing. I'm doing 30 plus a year now. And, and it, the ones I focus on are the ones about self. So, I mean, one of the recommendations for any you know, people that I work with or anyone looking to, to get to know themselves is start with books. Because books is someone's 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their life experience condensed into three or 400 pages or five or six hours of audio. And you, you're getting the, the distilled purest form of that person's perspective. And I think it's so powerful. And that's why you know, I have a massive love of books now, not necessarily the physical ones, but what they actually can do for you as, as a growth tool. I'm the same, John. I, I only listen to audio books. I rarely read. If I do read, I need to be on holidays and relaxed. And I'll, and I'll read a, an adventure fiction or something like that. But mostly I'm listening backwards and forwards to work. And, and I've gone through similar kind of numbers of books. I've actually also listened to some fiction um, titles as well, which I would never get around to, to reading ever. Yeah, likewise, the sci-fi area, I like those. So it's good. Yeah. So what would you say the top sort of two or three audio books slash books that you've read, uh, Tony, that, that really stuck with you? Where, where, where do you think? But you can't go past Brené Brown. Um, Brene, um, she is an absolutely phenomenal thinker and calls you to account. You listen to her or read her books and she, she you stand to attention. You go, geez, I've got to do better. Um, she, she really cuts through. So, um, and I know so many people um, are devotees of her work and, and she's very humble and, and very a bit more introverted as well. And, and so I, I, I really love listening um, to her work. Some of the others... Uh, recently, I interviewed a guy for my podcast series um, who's got a book called Indistractable, uh, uh, near Al. So in, indistractable, not indestructible, indistractable. Very incredible message that he's got. Recently, Sapiens. Um, oh, fantastic So just book. those kind of more philosophical, big big books like that I enjoy listening to and, and contemplating as well. It's, it's a hard question to ask too because I think, I think books at different points in your journey – have a much higher or lower relevance as well. I found it, you know, that some of them, I remember reading uh, The Way of the Superior Man um, a few years ago, the first time listening to it. And I kind of didn't fully get it. And then I listened to it 12 months later. It was like a new book. And then I listened to it about 12 or 18 months after that again. It, again, it was like a new book. I feel like Star Wars. When I, when I watched Star Wars as a kid, it was totally different to when I watched it as a 30-year-old, mate. Yeah. There's <laughs> a bit of something in that for everyone. Uh, so clearly you've had a big month, Tony. You're well and truly... Uh, one of the few. To, to get there, we travel through trials and tribulations. How can you explain to people what it's like to be you? How can you express to people what, what makes the battling, the challenges, the sleepless nights? What is the benefit of being Tony, of being the few? That is a freaky question. <laughs> I've never been asked that before. Um, um, I would immediately respond and go, oh, you wouldn't want that. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't wish it upon you. Um, to me, it's about um, everything's a bonus. I feel like I've accomplished so much um, in my life. I traveled around the world for three and a half years. Uh, my, my professional career, I've accomplished a lot. 
uh, great friends, um, sport. I competed at a high level, worked with my family, um, met a beautiful woman and, and got, got married and fell in love. And my son, who was going to be a, um, a single child, has now a sibling and my stepdaughter was going to be a single child. So lots of things have happened but I'm very much an optimist. So it's about always looking at the positive, enjoying people's company. And yeah, that's a, that's a weird question. I would have normally would have wanted to think about that for a couple of days before I come up with an answer, um, (laughs) then, then kind of immediately react to something. There's a lot of personal pursuit. Um, to me, it's about learning. It's about the joy of learning and evolving. And one of the reasons why um, when I, I met my wife on RSVP and I had put it out there that I wanted to meet someone that I could evolve with and I could, and who would challenge me and who would make me better than, than I was before. And, you know, that's the key to me. That's where I feel like, um, you know, I'm still engaged. Mm-hmm. So, so before we, and in line with that, uh, that question and that, and that, that great response, um, if you were to take uh, your biggest lesson that you've picked up now as, as a 57 year old in your journey and go back to you when you're a younger version of yourself, what would the message be that you would give to yourself at that point in time? What would you pass? What words of wisdom would you give to yourself? Um, yeah, you probably worked out. I'm a bit of a storyteller. I'll, I'll share this with you because it kind of came up before me. Didn't get a chance um, to, uh, for me to include it, but um, I'll, I'll answer it this way. Uh, when I was doing all those workshops um, I did a bit of a crazy one called uh, spiritual mastery and it was a 10 week 10 weekend kind of um, program and on one of the this Australian guy a Greek Australian guy who had spent uh, 14 years in India um, studying to be a swami a guru um, came back to Australia and he ran this course and so he explained to us during one of the weekends that there was a three-day weekend workshop that they were running in India 800 people were arriving and, and um, there was, it was a meditation retreat and 15 minutes before it was supposed to start or an hour, I think an hour before it was supposed to start, um, word got through that his guru that was running the whole course, the great guru had just died and everyone was arriving and there was, oh my God, that's a terrible thing. The great, the great guru. Oh my. Anyway, the guy that was running the course and 800 people were arriving rushes and runs to his room and slams the door and everyone's going oh my god it's a terrible thing people are arriving how are we going to do we can't we have to cancel do we cancel we don't know what we right 15 minutes later this this guy his guru right comes out of the room completely clear and he had grieved without resistance he was able to feel all the feelings he needed to feel and be able to be complete within 15 minutes of, of hearing the news. And you can tell that I obviously played with that. I obviously was really struggling with grieving or things that didn't work out the way that I wanted. And after that, <clears throat> my ability to be able to let things go or grieve. So when the IPO didn't happen, say four years ago, it took me about three hours to grieve. And then it, then it felt like one door had closed and 10 opened. My deputy CEO, who's 20 years younger than me, took him about three weeks. And then he was okay after that. And I think one of the things in life, and I'm not talking now about business, I'm talking about personally, uh, with, you know, with your friends, with your family, kids, um, your sporting teams, right? You've got to be able to grieve and grieve without resistance. Because if you do that and you can realize that you can let it go, then you're available to be engaged in life. 
That's incredible. That's awesome. That's some seriously insightful, Tony. Thanks very much. Tony, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of, no doubt, your incredibly hectic schedule uh, to share uh, some of these insights. For a lot of people, there we're all on the journey. The journey never ends. Uh, and some of the stuff that you've mentioned today, uh, I know, certainly got me reflecting uh, on what's been a, a pretty tough uh, 2020 and giving me a little bit of uh, clarity moving forward as well. Absolutely. So thank you so much for sharing, Tony. Some really incredible insights there that I know a lot of people are going to be able to take away and apply. So we appreciate your generosity. Yeah, I look forward to the next time. This is just a part one. We've got to come back and do Excellent. some more. Looking forward to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Good <laughs> on you. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, everyone. Take care. This has been The View Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The View Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.